And if you would please turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. You can find that on page 1180 if you want to use our Pew Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Maybe you've asked yourself at some point in your life as a Christian, what is the most repeated warning or promise in Scripture? In other words, what concerns are so pressing that God, the Holy Spirit, insisted that they be repeated many times over and over and over again? Now, I won't ask you to do that right now uh, in the middle of the sermon, but if we were to do it, I'm fairly certain that one of the most repeated warnings of the Bible is the warning against false teachers. Jesus, Peter, John, and Paul frequently warned the church of the coming of false teachers. Our Lord Jesus, with his typical, incredible skill in vivid imagery, he puts it this way. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Then again, at the end of his ministry in Matthew 24, Jesus says, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. After Jesus' ascension, Peter continued to predict these things. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, that is Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And then John, the apostle John with his usual soaring insight, traces the roots of the false teachers back into the spiritual realm, seeing them as demonic in origin. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then finally, as Paul goes out into the Gentile world with the gospel, he regularly repeats these solemn warnings. In his earliest letters, the letters to the Thessalonians, he speaks of a man of lawlessness who will signal the end of the age. But he also wants them to know that the spirit of lawlessness is already at work. More importantly, maybe for our study you might remember how Paul in the book of Acts gathered these elders from this church, the Ephesian church. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, that is, among the elders, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. All of this, I hope, brings us back to something I've tried to faithfully repeat throughout this study. And even here near the end of this letter, I want to repeat it again. Satan has, from the very beginning, sought with all his power to control and to corrupt the message of God's church. We simply cannot afford to be naive about this. 
It is, and it always will be, Satan's primary strategy to corrupt the message of the church. Long before we had ministries of propaganda, Satan understood that by controlling the message, he could in fact control the world. Satan's temptation of Eve was not so much an appeal to her lust. After all, she wasn't lustful or sinful. Rather, his temptation was utterly theological. It was doctrinal. It was, we might say, confessional. He began by saying to her, did God really say that? And ever since then, bringing God's word into question is often, if not always, Satan's first move in someone's life and heart. Of course, he went on to tell Eve that God was unfair, that God was holding her back, that she could only become her true self by breaking free of God and trusting her own instincts. Eve converted temporarily and became the first heretic. Adam obeyed his wife and became the first apostate. And as their children, we need this warning. We need the portrait of a false teacher. So let us this morning study his image. Please stand then, if you would, for the reading of God's word. We'll begin in chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, indeed, it is only in the sound and healthy and life-giving words of Christ that the church, that anyone, can find life. Our own words are so corrupted by our selfishness and our sin and our misunderstanding. So we pray, Father, this morning that we would pay attention to your word and that all the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer and that the hearts of your people would be open, not to my words, but only as my words fit the word of Scripture, and that hearing that, they might rejoice and receive it. And together, we as a church may become lovingly but firmly vigilant against false teaching. We pray do this in the life of our church and for your church all around the world, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, please be seated. Timothy's whole mission can be summed up in the little phrase that ends verse 2 and begins verse 3. Teach and urge these things, or teach, we might say in English, teach and insist on 
these things. This is Timothy's concise mission statement. This is why Paul has sent him to Ephesus. Now, normally it would have been the job of the elders, a plurality of elders, local elders at Ephesus to oversee the teaching and purity of the church. That's the norm. And in fact, in Acts 20, you'll remember, Paul commands the Ephesian elders to do just that. However, as we've seen in our study, the elders here are in real distress. Some are still worthy of honor. Some are still worthy actually of double honor. But others have turned away from Paul's gospel. And more tragically, they are leading others away from the gospel. First Timothy then was written by Paul to direct Timothy as he works for reformation in this struggling church. Timothy is not, you'll remember as we've seen, he's not to take a sledgehammer to the church, but rather with love and courage, he must guide the church firmly back onto the tracks of true faith. In our next few sermons, we're going to explore the incredibly rich conclusion to this letter. And today I especially want to look with you at the portrait of a false teacher given to us primarily in verses 3 through 5. Believe it or not, in the original, in the Greek, this is actually just one long, amazing sentence. One big if-then sentence. But in this one sentence, I believe that Paul gives us some critical insight into false teaching and false teachers. In our time, in our time, when there are hundreds of denominations, thousands of random unaffiliated churches, and possibly millions of articles and videos online, we must train ourselves and our children to recognize false teachers and false teaching. We must study the pictures of these ancient false teachers so that when we meet their descendants today, we will recognize them by their fruit. The picture painted here by Paul, I believe, has at least three major facets to it. These men, these false teachers, are first of all deeply heterodox, deeply heterodox. I'll explain that in a moment. Secondly, they are endlessly controversial. And thirdly, they are materialistically motivated. Deeply heterodox endlessly controversial and materialistically motivated. Let me show you this in the text. So first notice with me that they are deeply heterodox. Heterodox is the Greek word used here in verse 3, and it became a, a major word in the Christian faith. Paul writes, if anyone, verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, a different teaching, a different teaching in the Greek, it's that one word, the word heterodox. False teachers, first and foremost, are recognizable because they depart from the historical teachings of the church as contained primarily in scripture. They are, uh, at some level at least, anti-traditional. They see themselves usually as innovators, pioneers, and today especially, they often see themselves as an entrepreneur. In contrast, 
Paul urges Timothy to hold on to, to grasp firmly, to never leave the apostolic deposit of faith. No matter, no matter who might come along, no matter what anyone might say. In fact, this verse reminded me immediately when I read it, and I know probably others of you, of Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, where Paul writes, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Even angels are not permitted to alter the scriptures or undermine the foundation that Christ and his apostles have laid. Jesus confirmed this himself when he said to Peter in Matthew 16, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus didn't mean Peter as Peter, because just a few verses later, he actually accuses Peter of being satanic in his thinking. It's not Peter himself, so much as it was the confessing Peter. Peter, as he is making the great apostolic confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so the church was built on the apostles as they faithfully preached the word, as they made the true confession. If we have any doubts about this, Paul confirms that it was not just Peter who was the foundation, but all the apostles. In Ephesians 2.20, he describes the church as, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells the Corinthians that he laid the foundation of their church as a master builder by his preaching of the apostolic confession. He predicts that in the future, others will build upon that foundation, but they must not, he says, they cannot lay any other foundation. Just as you cannot tear up the foundation of a building without destroying the building itself, so also we cannot remove the scriptures from the church without destroying the church itself. And history clearly shows this. So the apostles laid the foundation. They were chosen by Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit to perform this vital function. And this is what Jesus means. This is what Jesus means in John 16. We tend to, when we read John 16, to jump ahead and read it about ourselves. But listen to these words again. And Jesus says to the apostles, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. We need to pause and remember that the you in this verse, he will guide you into all truth. As one of my favorite professors used to say, that you is an apostolic you. As in you, the apostles, will be led into all truth by the spirit and you will also declare the things that are to come. Now, here's my point. The apostolic foundation is what Paul has in view when he writes verse 3. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine, or if anyone comes to you teaching heterodoxy, don't listen. Paul is saying to us, he's warning us that false teachers uh, will bring new teaching and that true preachers, in some sense, must be traditional. Now, I know, I know that the word tradition has become a bad word. And it, it can be a bad word even in the Bible. Sometimes it does mean, even in Scripture, someone who blindly follows something without really knowing what it means. The Bible recognizes that tradition can work that way. It can have that negative sense. However, in the Bible, as in real life, tradition can be a good thing too, a life-giving thing. It often stands for true teaching or true doctrine. Listen to how Paul puts this in three different passages real quickly. He writes, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Or another place. Now we commend you, brothers, we praise you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and warn you to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And then 1 Corinthians 11, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything, and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But apostolic faith is not just a tradition. That's part of it but it's also a life-giving word. It is the word of God. Paul ends this long sentence, notice verse 3, by giving two remarkable designations or labels for this word of God. In verse 3, he calls the true teaching the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says the teaching that is in accordance with, that aligns with godliness. Don't rush through your Bible. Don't rush through your Bible. Those are vibrant, rich labels that Paul uses. The first one, the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ, can also be literally translated the healthy words of Christ, the healthy, life-giving words of Christ. The word in Greek is the word we get our word hygiene from. And Paul might have known, probably knew, that in the Old Testament, this word was used to describe what a priest does when he's checking for diseases. More to the point, sound words is one of his favorite descriptions of true teaching. In 1 Timothy 1.10, he writes against, quote, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and then he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, healthy words. Or think of Paul's warning, and this is 2 Timothy. For the time is coming, he says, when people will not endure sound teaching, sound words, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And to Titus, Paul writes that elders, the elders of the church, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he, the elder, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Healthy words 
or sound words is a beautiful picture of the apostolic gospel. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the fear of the Lord is clean. And there's something of that here, I think. There's a healthy soundness to good preaching and teaching as it rests upon the word of God. But notice also why these words are healthy. They are healthy, says Paul, because they are actually the words of Christ. Now that might sound unremarkable to you, but Paul here is making a very strong claim. The false teachers are leaving. Remember the false teachers in Ephesus, they're leaving Paul's teaching. Paul taught them the gospel, but Paul is reminding them and he's reminding Timothy that they aren't so much leaving his words as just another man, but in leaving his teaching, they are leaving the words of Christ. They may think, oh, we just don't like Paul that much. But in reality, it is Christ himself they have rejected. If I can put it this way, Paul is saying, well, tongue in cheek a little here, get rid of your red letter Bibles. Not literally, if you have one you love, it's okay. But at least in your minds, because Jesus' words are not confined to one little section of your Bible, the whole of Scripture from beginning to end is the word of Christ. It was the spirit of Christ, we're told in Scripture, that stirred the prophets and apostles that caused them to write. This is why Jesus is himself the Logos, the word. And as Jesus reminds his disciples, all these things are about him. So there is no way, brothers and sisters, to disentangle Paul from Jesus. Here, Timothy is reminded that in embracing, a, in, a, in embracing another teaching, a heterodoxy, they are leaving not just Paul, but they are leaving Christ. Today, amazingly, this same old wobbly heresy is trotted out in its rags from the early 20th century. We're told that we can hold to Jesus, but kind of take a pass on Paul. That we can like the Sermon on the Mountain, turning the other cheek, but hate justification by faith as preached by Paul. But the entire New Testament has proven itself to be the word of God. And Paul views his own teaching as nothing less than the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has been proven. It has been proven again and again because the New Testament continues every year to produce real godliness, as Paul says here. It's bearing fruit in all the world. And despite all the hatred thrown at it, it just keeps changing people. And so evidence, evidencing itself, testifying to itself as the fruit bearing word of God. But have you ever come to grips really with what the word of Christ is? It's easy in a church like ours to hear the word and not really hear it, to not understand its power and its potential. Listen to Jesus in John chapter eight. He says, if you abide in my word, 
You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And again, in John 6, when the public was turning away from Jesus because his words were offensive to them, he says, quote, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then at the end of his life, end of his earthly ministry anyway, he says in John 15 this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And then lastly, many years later, at the end of the apostolic era, the apostle John wrote this. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching, the orthodoxy, has both the Father and the Son. So the first mark of the false teacher is that he is deeply heterodox. The second mark of the false teacher, you'll notice in the text, is that he is endlessly controversial. Endlessly controversial. Never-ending controversy. I think that's the picture we get, uh, especially in verse 4 and in the beginning of verse 5. Look again at those verses with me. If someone teaches another doctrine, then, verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce only envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Bad elders, bad elders and bad pastors create constant friction and debate because they are never willing to root themselves in the apostolic tradition. They are always coming up with new ideas that promote speculation and envy. All throughout this letter, Paul has shown us this. The false teachers in Ephesus were not content to stay in the healthy gospel that Paul had given them. They needed something new. Paul had taught them, remember, Paul had taught them to read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, to understand all of the Old Testament as a testimony about Christ. He had left them with a Christ-centered message. But tragically, they had stopped reading the Old Testament that way. Remember chapter 1. There in chapter 1, Paul says of the false teachers, they use the law unlawfully. They twist the Old Testament. They stop teaching people to find Christ in the Old Testament. And instead, they use the Old Testament as a secret hiding place for all kinds of little doctrines and numbers that could be discovered. I think we should pause here to realize how insane this really was. Paul had spent several years in Ephesus teaching the gospel and performing miraculous signs. Why would anyone leave that foundation so quickly? Wouldn't you want, wouldn't you want to just grow in the apostolic faith? But verse 4, I think, offers an explanation, and we really need to take this in today. They want to be controversial because they are puffed up with conceit and they actually don't know anything at all. 
Those two things, brothers and sisters, they go together. Being puffed up and knowing nothing. The first lesson all young pastors have to learn, hopefully while they're still in seminary, is that they don't know anything. It's estimated that when you graduate from our local seminary, Westminster, you will have read about 40,000 pages along with doing Greek and Hebrew. However, the wise graduate realizes that those 40,000 pages are only the introduction to a life of theology and that such an accomplishment means nothing if there is not humility at the end of it. The ancient church father Chrysostom writes this, these very short but I think penetrating words. He says, presumption or pride therefore arises not from knowledge but from knowing nothing. The false teacher's pride, his willingness to sling aside the tradition of the church is a sign that he has not taken the very first step in real learning, which is the realization of how little you know. This is what the Bible calls the fear of God, the beginning of wisdom. I know this is hard for us, especially as Americans, to fully grasp. We as Americans highly, highly value innovation. And in so many areas of our life, I am deeply thankful uh, for innovations. But in our faith, and even in our practices as a church, innovation has been devastating. It was born in dreams of pure arrogance. And innovation is where the false teacher lives. He really believes, or at least he's convinced people, that he's stumbled onto something original. Just as the false teachers seemed to open up the Old Testament in some new and exciting way that Paul didn't understand. Remember, these men will always pretend to know a lot. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that there's a kind of knowledge that puffs up. The language there is literally, as it is here, just hot air. But love serves and love remembers. And in the book of Colossians, Paul warns the church there that asceticism, that is the denying of your body to try and please God, also puffs up. It's empty it gives a false sense of maturity. It's a faux spirituality. This arrogance then leads to what Paul calls here literally constant word battles. Unnecessary controversy followed the false teachers. Their ministry didn't lead to a healthy, a stable church where people could focus on learning and love. Rather, the church was constantly being churned up with new discoveries and new debates as the false teachers moved further and further into their esoteric study of the Old Testament. In contrast, Paul had already told them how to read the Old Testament. Paul and the apostles teach us to read the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way. They interpreted all the promises, roles, and commands in the light of the glory of Christ in these last days. But this apostolic approach wasn't as exciting, apparently, 
as a mystical, hidden interpretation favored by the false teachers. One of the clearest hallmarks of false teachers is that they get bored with being Christ-centered. I feel horrible even saying that, because what can be better than finding Christ in everything? And yet we have that today, don't we? Men in pulpits, or better yet, men on stages, who are consumed with political movements, whose dearest wish is to be relevant, even attractive. When you watch them, you can't help but think, is this a man of God, or is this just another influencer? Of course, it's not wrong to be online or to influence people, but here's what I'm saying. It's very unhealthy for a pastor to be enamored with anything other than Christ crucified in his work. And such a ministry will always be marked by endless controversy, envy, and slander. If I can say here just a word about our church, our elders, and especially our two pastors. We are both as pastors, Pastor Trescar and I, strongly committed to our doctrinal standards, the Westminster standards. I hope it's clear by our verse-by-verse preaching that our commitment to the standards is in no way a replacement for Scripture. Rather, our doctrinal standards are simply a faithful, enduring, time-tested, and carefully thought-out summary of what we think the Bible teaches. But at times, but at times, I know that makes us feel rather traditional, maybe even boring, if we're being honest. But let me tell you, we will take that label if it means that you find us reliable, safe, and predictable in the best sense of those words. Because here's what I want so badly, is my heart. I want you and your children and your children's children to have a stable, safe, and predictable church home. By having standards, doctrines we put in front of you and say, this is what we believe, the officers of our church agree not to fight about everything all the time. As an entire congregation, we don't agree on everything, and that's fine. We don't have to. We can talk about those issues, though, without threat because the elders, pastors, and deacons are united because they make a study of being predictable. When our session meets, we spend the first hour and a half or so in prayer and discussing the needs of the body. Why? Well, in part, you see, it's because we don't have to fight endlessly about the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. We begin every session meeting with scripture and a devotional. We need to talk about theology. I love that. But there's a difference between the humble discussion of scripture in an orderly, submissive context and what Paul here calls constant friction. Constant friction. Jesus has said, you will know them by their fruit. Controversy, anger, envy, dissension. I would add the abuse of women, slander. These things always follow the false teachers, and they are the fruits 
of their ministry. When you see that fruit, depart from that man. Do not click his videos. Do not subscribe to his podcast. Stop feeding him. Leave him. His fruit is known. Lastly, these men are deeply heterodox. They're endlessly controversial. Lastly, these men are materialistically motivated. I think that's what Paul is after here at the end of verse 5 when he writes that they imagine that godliness or religion is a means of gain. As Paul makes clear in the verses that follow, he is talking here primarily about money. That is the context, money. But I think I'm justified because of the rest of scriptures to expand that to materialism in general. And I think we need to do that. The false teachers we meet in the Bible, like the Pharisees, they always do it for what they get out of it, the benefits. That may be honor. That may be influence, that may be fame, or it may be money, but it's materialistic. Now, for a businessman, we have some of those in the room. If you're a businessman, businesswoman, it's perfectly fine to turn a profit. But pastors may not operate in that mindset. This doesn't mean that all pastors must be poor. In chapter 5 of this letter, Paul has said that faithful teaching elders should receive funds But then remember, as Paul says that about the pastors, he cites the ox who treads out the grain and the day laborer who on the farm brings in the harvest. And those are his two wisdom examples. As we noted together when we're going through those verses, the ox was the tractor of the ancient farm. He was useful for a lot of different things and it would be hard to get much done over time well without him. In a similar way, your harvest could be incredible, but without the daily labor to collect it, it would rot in the fields. So also teaching elders or pastors, as we call them today, should be paid, but in a way that makes it possible for them to get useful, to do their work with as little distraction as possible, and in a way that recognizes their hard labor. The pastor's pay should say, You are very useful to this farm, not you are very famous. It should be given in the spirit of Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me. But the false teachers did not think this way. After all, remember, Ephesus was a wealthy city and religion was its main business. Home to the astounding temple to Diana, considered now by scholars to be the greatest wonder of the ancient world. The city was one of the greatest religious sites in the world. Silversmiths, for example, made a fortune selling images of Diana. Maybe some of these early Christians were still escaping that mindset. The idea that religion could be money, could be big business. That mindset had led to cravings. And when sin conceived, it brought forth death. They pierced themselves through with many sorrows. As Paul says later in verse 10, they set out to be rich. But notice what Paul says In seeking riches, they became poor. Verse 5 describes them very ironically. I think it's lost a little in English. Let me retranslate it a little for you. Verse 5 can say, 
they are poor in mind and poor of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of riches. Do you see what Paul's saying? In the quest for riches, fame, whatever it is, materialism, they lost everything and became poor in every other way. This is also the world we live in. There is a deep confusion right now in the church about what is Christian ministry. We see it all the time. For instance, and this may, I don't know, offend someone, but I trust the Lord with it. Ask yourself, just ask yourself, is it proper? Is it proper that a pastor enter the pulpit as if he has just walked off the red carpet? For this reason, I wear a lot of black. Not because, as one member recently joked, I'm, I am not doing my best Johnny Cash impression. <laughs> but because I'm trying to be less visible. Not so the false teacher. Squinting through his Botox injections, he smiles. He spreads his hands wide. The pulpit has been removed so that he can better express himself which is a nice way of saying to show off. After all, that old pulpit, that old clunky pulpit was meant to be a veil as much as it was also a desk for his notes. It confined him. It hid him so that the word could shine. It hid the man to expose the message. And that will no longer do for the performing pastor. Always remember, the false teacher wants to be seen even more than heard. And in so doing, he says in every way possible, I'm in it for the money. I'm in it for the attention. And let's be honest, their churches fill up. It's amazing, isn't it? It's so obvious, and yet their churches fill up. And here's why, because the people filing in, are saying ever so quietly in their own hearts, us too, us too, us too. When he finally disgraces himself out of ministry, and almost all of them have, then he seamlessly moves into fashion, PR, entertainment, or the nebulous word world of influencing. By the way, none of those callings are bad in and of themselves. But it's always wise. And I think one of the most revealing questions you can ever ask a pastor is this. What would you be doing if you were not a pastor? Shortly before his brutal execution, Paul opened his pastor's heart to his spiritual son in 2 Timothy. And amazingly, uh, Paul returned to an image he had really used throughout his ministry. Paul had always had an interest in athletics. He often preached and wrote using the pictures from the Olympic Games or from the idea of people competing physically. And so here in his last letter, words that he probably wrote just right before his death, he came back in the old paths of his mind to one of his favorite images. He tells Timothy this, as for you, Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In those dying words, Paul, as it were, takes our passage this morning and he puts it in a mirror and he turns it around and he reads it backwards. Here is a true teacher's heart. Here is the portrait of a faithful minister of the gospel. Paul calls here for a sober-minded man. If you don't know what that means, join us in our evening series as Pastor Trescar is right now exploring that exact idea in the scriptures. So also the true minister endures suffering. In fact, suffering, and especially the way he endures it, marks him as God's true man. Enduring suffering is the truest mark that God is really with a man. Suffering faithfully endured, suffering faithfully endured, is heaven's trademark. Jesus taught us this. All the apostles taught us this. If we want to find true teachers, we have to stop looking for success and start looking for faithful sufferers. We need broken men who are carrying a whole gospel. In stark contrast, don't you see now? The false teachers were just the new silversmiths, the new idol makers of Ephesus. The image was no longer the image of Diana, but the image of themselves. Paul's mind could not be more different. His eyes are not fixed on any image except the greater image, a more brilliant metal fills his mind. For he writes, there is laid up for me the victor's crown of righteousness given by the righteous Lord to all those who loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, here is true motivation for you and motivation for me. Look up and see. See it now. For at that finish line, the finish line of your life, which is coming, one stands waiting for you. The unfading crown is in his hand, not made of silver or gold, but of a metal that will never tarnish, a reward that will never go dim through all the ages of all the worlds. And the words are waiting on his lips. Well done. Good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of your Lord. From this vision of faith, all the truly great ministers have received everything they need to pursue their ministry. From it, they become sober-minded. From it, they become faithful. From it, they become eager and zealous. But this is not just for pastors or elders or deacons or teachers. It's for us all. So lay aside, lay aside this morning, the silver, smudgy little image of self, the new teaching with all its endless controversies and fights, and instead fight the good fight and let the end of your story, what is coming, dictate the today. 
This is the joy set before us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would turn us even this hour from the addiction to self, the idol of self, and to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the image of the invisible God. He is the king of glory. He is the shepherd of love. He holds the attention of all of heaven. And his ministers, his elders, his deacons, and all his people are fixated upon him and must be fixated upon him. May that be true of us. Turn us away from what is visual and pleasing and new and recaptivate us to Christ. We pray do that today and throughout the life of this church. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.